Hey, all seven of you out there. As you guys know, we've done a sponsorship this last eight weeks with Hall Tactical, and we've run some clips with an interview we did with CEO Petra Bakasova at the end of each of the episodes. But we wanted to air the entire episode or interview that we did as an episode from beginning to end because it's a fascinating conversation. Hopefully all of you guys get a chance to listen to it. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for pics, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The we now welcome in Petra Bakasova to the Bet the Process podcast. Petra, welcome. It's like nice for us to have someone that's really smart finally on the podcast. So I think getting an applied math, uh, has some, someone that has an applied math and then like an advanced degree from UChicago would really fit into that category. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into this world of finance, especially like specifically, I mean, I think applied math is just this awesome field now that um, you can do so much from. And so as you thought about what you did with an applied math background, how did you think about finance and and, and broadly as the place to go? Sure. Um, hi, Jeff. Hi, Rufus. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess my background and how I ended up in finance, I was always good at math and I never wanted to be a math teacher. So that took me a, a little bit to figure out, like, what do you do when you're good at math and you don't particularly want to be in a classroom all day long? And then I realized there's a lot of applications to math and, and one of them being finance and econ. And that's where I sort of like found my passion. I was always really excited about econ. And uh, obviously, University of Chicago had a really strong financial math program. So I joined that. And then if you graduate with a degree in financial math in Chicago, there's a really good chance one of the Chicago trading firms will sweep you up and, and you'll get a job there. So I sort of just follow the path of everybody else from the program. And then two trading firms later, I ended up working with Blair and, and, and here I am. As someone, Blair, that's kind of like a little bit of the opposite of you, right? He's not necessarily an academic by by nature, right? And he had a lot of practical knowledge. What do you gain most from working with him? Or what do you, what do you think that the yin and yang of working together is? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't, you know, sell Blair short. I don't know if people know this, but he was a trained math teacher at, at one of, you know, an earlier point in his life. So he is pretty, you know, math savvy. Uh, but it's it's fascinating to work with him and to like really appreciate just how quick he is with you know understanding all the underlying math and being able to like distill somewhat complicated models into really simple concepts and and that's what I appreciate. You get a lot of math PhDs and they can write beautiful papers on crazy complicated models and then when it comes to, you know, translating what they see in the market, they're, they're lost. And, and Blair's like the opposite of that. That's actually segues into a good question, which is ultimately, it looks like a lot of the work that you did would have fallen into the category of research. 
and then you actually need to go implement that. So how describe the process of how research becomes actual, you know, models and, and strategies that you are, you know, leveraging millions, billions of dollars on. Absolutely. So, you know, to piggyback a little bit on Blair's earlier interview, which I highly recommend everybody goes and listens to, uh, we scour all the academic work. Uh, so he's probably spending hours every day on Google Scholar looking for any new research related to predicting the market, predicting options return, equity returns, anything that might be relevant to us. And then, uh, you know, that's sort of the starting point. We see something that has a compelling story that makes sense. Uh, and then then we sort of, you know, start applying multiple checks. Uh, so just because somebody writes an academic paper and they have a cool story about why an indicator should work, that doesn't mean that it's going to the model tomorrow and we're trading it tomorrow. Uh, there's a really well-known problem in academia and in finance in particular, uh, which is the replicate, it's, it's known as the replication crisis. There was even a Financial Times article back in 2021 about the hidden replication crisis in finance. And basically what is a well-known problem is that roughly half of all academic articles published either cannot be replicated or they can be replicated, but the results only hold in that specific sample that the authors choose. So basically kind of step one, when we see something good, we don't take it for granted. We try to replicate it and we try to replicate it on a different time sample. So that's kind of the first sanity check. And if the results still hold outside of the original sample, that's a good sign. And that's sort of like where the real model building work begins. And then, okay, so then, yeah, and I'm guessing your follow-up question is going to be about the real model building work. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then this is, like, step two is also where a lot of good people fool themselves into overfitting models. They have really good intentions, and, and they, you know, try, they get a new indicators, and they try a two-day moving average, and then they try a 10-day moving average. And then they try a 15-day moving average, and then they try, you know, a moving average, some kind of a crossover with two moving averages, and, and try changing the moving averages within the crossovers. And before they realize what they've done, they have tested 100 different transformations of this variable. And then, you know, they keep trying and building models with all these different combinations. And what they end up doing is another well-known finance or I guess stats problem known as p-hacking. So eventually they do get the t-stats and the p-values that they would like to see, but, you know, they sort of ignored how many different things they tried in the process. So that's another thing we have to be really careful about. And, and that's the part of overfitting that that's really hard to avoid. Um, and sort of like how we have gone about that, which I think is a little bit neat and a little bit helpful. So what we try to do is one, you know, stop ourselves from trying a thousand different things. And two, we try to build models which allow for dynamic adjustments of these transformations. So we don't necessarily dictate that, you know, this uh, price to earnings ratio will be used with, you know, 200 day moving average. But we let some, you know, we say, okay, we want a moving average transformation, but we let the optimal um, 
parameter of this moving average to you know differ from a refit to refit. So every time the model refits, it can pick its own optimal transformation, or it can even like pick from a number of different optimal transformations. So that way we sort of you know limit one of the choices that we make outside of of the of the backtest. And so like all these choices that we make knowingly or unknowingly, we would refer to them as hyperparameters. So we always try to like one, keep track of how many hyperparameters we have in each model. And then like every now and then we try to test the robustness of all these hyperparameters. So for example, what I mean by that is if we fit a model and the model works well with a 20 day moving average, will it still work well with the 25 day moving average or does it completely fall apart? So ideally, what's really good news if you see if, if the models are sort of stable and not super sensitive to like particular choices of, of these hyperparameters. And if they are, you know, that's potentially dangerous. So do you have something? Oh, I mean, this, this just sounds like so similar to stuff I deal with with modeling golf and looking at performance over the last certain number of days relative to baseline. And, and, you know, if, if these little, you know, if I change it from the last four weeks to the last three weeks, the last five weeks, and I get really, really different things, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So when you think then about like, we've, we've had someone on in the past who's talked a little bit about the, 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 like two versions of almost like modeling one he's calling like a left to right versus a right to left. And I think you could probably understand what that means from a standpoint of starting with a hypothesis and then going into the data or looking at the data and then kind of trying to almost suss out a hypothesis from that. What do you, what do you guys think more about? Because I assume that like, if you're looking at research papers, there is some semblance of hypothesis that goes into these research papers that you ultimately then need to like sort of bear out or prove out in the real world. Um, which do you think best describes the methods that you guys use at, at Hall Tactical? So starting with the hypothesis is always a little bit dangerous because there's kind of a famous saying that if you beat the data long enough, it's it's going to tell you what you want to hear. So, you know, starting with a really strong prior, you're probably going to find exactly what you want. So, but on the other hand, we don't want to start with just, you know, data because there has been such a huge explosion of data available and there's so many you know variables that may not be variables and you're just looking at superior correlations so i would say we you know whether we want or not because we start from academic work there's usually some kind of hypothesis built in but we try to be really open-minded and and you know if we it's it's more like the baseline is the variable doesn't make it in, even if it has a good hypothesis. So if we, you know, we look for reasons to exclude variables as opposed to, you know, trying to beat the data into proving that something is correct. Do you gamble at all personally? Uh, personally, I don't. I, I think my experience with Hall Tactical has really humbled me in a sense, knowing just how much work and how much skill it takes to be an advantaged player. So if I feel like I don't have an advantage in a space, 
I do not gamble in it. And I'm sure this applies to all of your listeners, whether they're building models for golf or football or, you know, blackjack. I, I, I think it takes so much work and so much domain specific knowledge to to be able to gain an advantage there's a lot of smart people out there yeah it's funny because if you look up the technical definition of the word gamble it literally means that you're entering into a transaction where you don't believe you have an advantage so theoretically advantage players aren't necessarily gambling by the very definition of the word um you talked about advantage players which i love because you know that is a great topic of conversation that we talk about. Um, what do you like when you look at someone like Blair, who's an acknowledged advantage player, and I'm sure you've met other advantage players through him. Are, are there things that you see in them that you say, "God, I wish I had that skill," or "God, I wish I'm uh, God, I'm glad I don't have that skill." Or are, are there any examples of that? So one example that it it's never going to matter how much I try or how little Blair tries is I think Jeff you would know this as well from your blackjack days you have to be extremely accurate and extremely fast at like algebraic operations and really quick in solving these simple statistical problems uh and and that's a skill that Blair has he can you know in his head uh he can he can do math that I I just couldn't. I think I write prettier code than he does, but I'll never beat him at mental algebra. It's I, I get that. And and again, like I think I told this story about when I got hired at O'Connor Associates, and they were just trying to see if you could do relatively simple math quickly and mm -hmm. on the spot. Because some of it is not, some of it is literally just the on the spot piece that they, they kind of want to know. And that ability to kind of do that is, is definitely, I don't know if it's, it's, it's learned or if it's innate, but like, who knows? We talked a little bit about Google scholar. Um, what, what are some of the things that you're most excited about for the, in the, for, in the future of HTAA? Obviously it's a very evolving uh, effort. And as you think about the roadmap in front of you, what are the things that you're most excited about? Uh, I think I'm most excited about, uh, our potential ability to increase the number of bets. So when we first launched, we we first launched with a model that was forecasting six month equity risk premium. So even though we had overlapping returns, you really had two independent observations per day. So that was pretty rough. And then, you know, eventually we shortened the horizons and we were more successful once we were forecasting one day ahead returns. So now we have one bet per day. And uh, we have recently been approved to trade options in the fund. And we have spent a lot of time uh, internally developing options trading strategies. So this will increase the number of bets we can place. And also that opens up um, potential for building more sophisticated models, which I'm excited about. Again, like when you're Forecasting S&P 500 returns one day ahead, you get 250 observations per year. So with 10 years of data, you get 2,500 observations. So you can't really go, you know, much more sophisticated than regression models. But once you open the door to being able to forecast options returns, 
you have so many classes and so many explorations and, and a rich history. So that really opens up the door for potentially using more sophisticated machine learning models. Are there any, you know, asset classes or strategies that are outside of your world that you are interested in or that you put your money into? Like what are, what are they, you know, obviously the, the sort of high frequency in a low frequency world, blah, blah, that is the ethos of, of your investment strategy, but are there other areas that you personally are interested in putting money into um, that aren't in your do specific domain? Uh, so far, not really. I, as I mentioned, I like to stick to things that I think I understand. If I feel like I don't understand something, I, I have stayed away. I've stayed away from crypto so far. I'll probably stay away from NFTs and, and a lot of very exciting things that I'm sure a lot of people have edge in, but I, I, I like to stick to equities. So there's some interesting you know, parallels here between what you do in sports betting. And as a final question, unless Rufus, you have something else, would love to explore just some of the general philosophies slash advice that you would give to our seven listeners that are interested in sports betting, et cetera, because ultimately there are a lot of parallels and there there's just simple ways to think. So maybe what are three pieces of advice that you would give to any aspiring sports better that's trying to use data and modeling and statistics to beat the sports market? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, so I would say, huh, I'm going to have to think about that one. So well, so I, I think I think you actually already you've already done it pretty well in this interview. I, the first thing that I would start, and I'll give you a, a kickstart, is around um, like betting things that you know, right? Like finding something that you really know and that you know well, okay. and like leveraging that as your starting point. So making sure that you have good data from there, etc., and then mm -hmm. kind of like going after that. That that's something that I think you you were very clear on that mm -hmm. that you thought that was a, a piece. Sure. Yeah. So I would say advice number one, stay focused. Like you can't be good at everything. So find an area which, which you can be passionate about just because you like the sport or you like the type of the model and uh, try to become an expert in that area. And then uh, number two, I would say try to stay in the game. Uh, you know, obviously bet in a way that allows you to come back tomorrow. There's almost always a tomorrow. Uh, and then uh, number three, even though my advice number one was to focus, but number three, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, ensembling of models and diversifying. Um, so if, if you can try to develop multiple models and uh, try to bet uh, with more than just one. Actually, that reminds me of a question that I did want to ask, and we asked this to Blair. The concept of ensemble modeling and then how to use those models and employ those, weighting them, et cetera. Like, do you think about that as an art versus a science, or how do you think about the, the, the right process to figure that out? Yep. So, so we do have a scientific process, but the scientific process is not perfect. So we can do two things that are very scientific. We can 
treat every strategy as an asset and we can calculate daily returns from each strategy and then we can build like a beautiful Markowitz portfolio. We can like build like a little efficient frontier and then allocate the weights optimally between strategies. Um, the problem with that is especially if your strategies don't have a lot of live history, either you end up using backtested returns, which as we discussed are usually too good to be true, or you end up working with a really small sample. So your correlations are not very stable and the weights that the Markowitz portfolio recommends are probably not very stable. Then you can do a more brute force approach. You can do some kind of a grid search. So if you have like five strategies, you can say, I will allocate my money in 5% or 10% increments. And then you try all the different combinations of the weights and then that gives you an optimal weight. And then you can look at, and then basically what we end up doing, we look at both, we look at the Markowitz weights and we look at the grid search weights. And then we look at the weights that we currently have in production. And then we have a discussion about whether or not we have a good enough reason to change anything. And, and we tend to be pretty cautious because the trade-off is on one hand, you want to be responding quickly so that when a model stops working or when you discover a model never worked in the first place you want to get rid of it pretty quickly but on the other hand it's it's a well-known fact that different models perform well in different regimes so just because one of your models is not performing well for a few months it doesn't mean it's not coming back so then we have to balance you know giving the models enough time to come back versus not letting a bad model to drag down the performance. And that's where the art comes in a little bit. How different are these models? Are they, I mean, I, I think the challenge is for me, at least on an ensembling is how similar most of the models are. And so you just have such a high degree of collinearity that if you build, if you try to look at an optimal fit, you're going to get, oh, 180% this model, negative 80% this model, things like that, that don't make, right? So yep. are your, are your models, are your models, um, a lot more independent? Um, yes and no. I mean, like we would be fooling ourselves into thinking they're totally independent just because they all are forecasting some kind of a return on S and P 500. Uh, but they are different, um, uh, just from, kind of like a structural point. So like right now we have four models and, and one is the long-term model. So that forecasts like six month equity risk premium. So that will be driven by like macro indicators. It will be looking at, uh, you know, all these price ratios, book to price, earnings to price. Um, it will be driven by things like Baltic dry index. It will be driven by things like the senior loan officer survey. And if at any point you, want me to elaborate on any of these indicators, I would be happy to. But that is kind of like a slow macro model. And then we have a one day model that, you know, moves a lot quicker and looks um, and is a lot more focused on things like sentiment and technical indicators. So they have some indicators that overlap, but there's like a decent level of independence between the two. And then the third model we have look, looks purely at market anomalies. And that's like super fascinating because these are things that should not exist because why wouldn't the market price them away? And, and somehow they have existed for years. So those are things like the turn of the month effect, 
pre-announcement drifts, like selling may go away, come back in October, uh, trading some momentum strategies. So again, like very different than any kind of macro or sentiment forecast. And and then the last model that's currently traded with the non-zero weight is, is like a super complicated um, model that fits higher distributions of S&P 500 returns and then tries to just predict direction of the S&P 500 one day ahead. So it's not even making a forecast of a return. It's just purely directional model based on high frequency data. So again, very different. How much uh, machine learning do you use? Uh, so in these uh, market timing models, I'm going to say very little, but that's because I don't consider regression-based models machine learning. Some people do uh, when it comes to some of the options models that we're building uh, in whole tactical. Those are machine learning models because they have a lot more data to work with. Awesome. Well, Petra, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Uh, huge parallels, and I can see Rufus's wheels turning on ideas. <laughs> and I feel like he's going to want to come do a, you know, six month internship at Hall Tactical to learn some new techniques and some new ways of approaching things. So, uh, we would uh, love to have Rufus. If if you want to come over, uh, we'll we'll set up a PC for you. Just just come over. We can always use your help and your expertise. I'm I'm sure you you could help us a lot with what you've been doing. I'm gonna hold you to that. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Petra. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Rufus. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's this episode of Beth the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical. The hosts of this podcast are not investors with HTAA and were not directly compensated for their views. However, HTAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share a conflict of interest because the sponsor paid a one-time cash compensation for the content of the podcast, and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HTAA's investment management services. Massive Peabody rankings. We're looking for the edge. Analytically driven. Crunching all the numbers.